South Africa. It's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. That it is another episode of The Long and the Short of It. My name's Simon Hill. I can see Dylan Rogers on screen. How are you doing, Dylan? Yeah, I'm doing well, Simon. Looking forward to today's chat. And, you know, as a golf fan growing up in South Africa, we've been so used to the dulcet tones of a legendary commentator out of the UK who I'm really looking forward to hearing more about today. But perhaps Dale can give us a bit more on him. It's really, I, I think it's a, it's a privilege for us to be talking with you and Murray, who is, along with Peter Alistair, the doyens of golf commentary. They really are. Uh, I always say to you and He's so smooth, he could slide uphill. <laughs> and uh, he's a wonderful guy to work with. He's uh, very helpful for, for new people who come along. But he was, a, you know, way before that, he was a wonderful player. And he played on the European Tour for, for a number of years. He was a terrific junior golfer. He came from the similar background to, to mine. His dad was a professional golfer. And uh, I think we're going to hear a lot of lovely stories from him today. And you played a lot of golf with him as well, didn't you, Dale? I certainly did, I, and Yoon uh, was a very elegant player, completely different to me. I mean, I was a, I stood up and smashed the ball, and he would stand up, and he had a beautiful slow swing. He was an elegant player. Didn't have huge uh, success on the European tour. Won a few tournaments out here in Africa on the Safari tour, but uh, he was a he was a a good player. As a commentator, I think you know he's had unique insight over the past twenty five to thirty years since he stepped into the commentary booth from the golf course. And I think what I'm interested in is his insight and observations of the game, how it's evolved, some of the biggest name players that have played the game and what he thinks about the, the game today. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the big thing with you and is that he works very, very hard. Before he walks into a commentary booth, he spends hours preparing. Hard work and you're going to, you're going to do a better job. And I can't think of anybody in world commentary in terms of golf that is better than you and Murray. A good player, an elegant commentator. Here's our chat with commentating legend Ewan Murray. Ewan, I think the first time I came across your name was uh, in San Diego at the World Junior Championship. And uh, I don't know, it was 1969, 1970, somewhere around there. But what also struck me was that, you know, you came from the same kind of background that I did. Your dad being a golf professional. Tell us about those early days and getting involved in golf with your, with your father. Well, my father was uh, a professional at Babbitton Golf Club in Edinburgh, which is about five miles west of the city. And I grew up, probably like you did, being in my father's shop, uh, down the putting green, chipping, hitting balls on the range, out in the course when you were allowed to go out in the golf course. So um, that was it, really. Um, the first 16, 17 years of my life was spent at Babbitton with my parents. And a childhood that you couldn't have wished for a better one. Uh, I had great courses on my doorstep, the likes of Gillen and North Berwick, Dunbar, Muirfield, all these places. And I used to go down there in the winter and play quite a lot of golf. So I had it, I had it made as a, as a youngster. It was lovely. Well, you, you say you had it made, and, and obviously, um, you know, everything came together well because you were an excellent junior player, good enough, obviously, to go to the World Junior Championship. Well, not many were good enough to do that, as you well know, Dale, because I think you won in, <laughs> was it 69? Yes. Yeah, I was two years uh, after you. But yeah, that was a very exciting time. It was the first time I'd ever left uh, Britain. And I remember flying down to Heathrow, flying across to Los Angeles, flying down to San Diego, 
And when the plane was coming in to land at Los Angeles, I looked out the window and thought, this is a bit bigger than the place I came from. <laughs> <laughs> so every, everything was brand new. And it was a wonderful adventure. As you know, you, you got to meet players from all over the world, the same age as you, and play on Torrey Pines, north and south. Uh, it was fantastic. Uh, and, and also kids of all ages. As you know, they had the peewee tournament. I think they called the the five, six, and seven-year-olds, and it, it went all the way up to to those who were 17. Anyone under 18 played. But it was a fantastic week and still fairly fresh in my memory. Very different from South Africa when you got to that point as, a, as an amateur golfer in Britain. Obviously, the Walker Cup is on your mind. You decided to turn professional. Why? Why? And was that an easy decision? Looking back, was it the right decision? Would you like to have stayed in amateur longer? I didn't have an awful lot of choice, Dale, because they were days that are very different to the days we live in today. And I remember playing in the trial. trial I was a trialist for Scotland in the home internationals, boys, that is. And I was 14 years of age, and I played with Howard Clark, who were only six weeks apart in, in ages. And it was at Dunbar, 1969, the British boys. And Howard shot 68 at 14. I shot 69 at 14. And we thought, well, that's it. We're in the Scottish boys team. We handed our cards in and an official said to both of us, what schools do you go to? And I said, well, I go, you wouldn't know it. I said, I went to a place called Curry High School. And Howard mentioned what school he went to. And he turned to us and he said, oh, bad luck. And I walked out and I thought, what was that all about? Well, he says, we obviously don't go to the right schools. And our scores were the best two scores. And we didn't get picked. We didn't get picked for the boys team. So there was 12 players, eight or 12 players, I think 12 in the international boys team. And Howard and I didn't get picked. So I then went on the following year to get to the final of the British boys at Hillside. And I was only four foot ten. I mean, I couldn't hit it out of my shadow. But I had a good short game. And I lost the final. I was one up and two to go, and I lost the final. I couldn't reach the last two greens in, in regulation. And that year, I did get picked for Scotland, and I was undefeated in the, the match against England. The following year, I won the Scottish boys match play at North Berwick. I won the stroke play at Lanark by five or half a dozen shots. I had that trip, obviously, to San Diego. I won the Crosnes Tassie, which was a big amateur tournament at Carnoustie. And I still didn't, didn't get picked for Scotland. And I thought, well, I said to my dad. And also, you know what it was like uh, as a club professional? It was quite difficult to make a good living. Uh, and you didn't make a good living. You just made enough to get through. And I couldn't afford, and my parents couldn't afford to let me play as an amateur for a year, which is probably what I needed. So on November the 1st, 71, I turned pro because I didn't really have an option. My father said it's the wrong thing to do. You're not strong enough. Uh, you haven't um, progressed body-wise to be able to play against the people you, you're going to be playing against. But, you know, at that time, I was winning every time I went out. And I thought, well, this is really quite simple. <laughs> this, this, this is not going to be difficult. <laughs> and then, of course, I went to... My first trip was to Kenya and Zambia and Zimbabwe and, 
um, other places, uh, Nigeria as well. And I was playing against top players, you know, like Tommy Horton, Malcolm Gregson, Ryan Barnes. Di Reese was still going then. And I realised I just wasn't ready for this. Uh, I was going around in 72 and 3 on courses that were a 1,000 yards longer than I was used to. But 72 and 3, as you know, doesn't cut it in professional golf. So that was how it turned professional. You asked if it was a mistake. Yes, but it, I was forced into making that mistake. In 1973, you and you joined uh, Walton Heath as, as an assistant pro. Five quid a week back then, eh? Was that good money? <laughs> well, I thought it was. <laughs> I I had spent the 1972 drifting, playing in, in Scottish events, playing an old European tour event, not doing much. And my father said, it's time you, you went and got a job and, and got paid. So I applied for the job uh, at Walton Heath as an assistant to Harry Busson, who was a great club maker back in these days. And yes, I, 22nd of April, I left uh, Turnhouse Airport in Edinburgh, landed at Gatwick, had to make my own way to Walton Heath. That was a, a problem. It was a brand new world, brand new place. And I was taken to my, what we call digs. I guess you'd call them uh, like a bed and breakfast, like a, a a three or four month bed and breakfast. Uh, and Miss Forbes was her name. And my digs cost me five quid a week. And I thought, well, hang on, this is not this is not working. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, I'm making five quid a week, <laughs> paying tax, and I'm giving five quid a week to, to Miss Forbes. So I did a lot of teaching. And uh, I did quite well at the, the teaching because uh, I had a lot of clients. And there was a lot of members at Wilton Heath. I kept playing. I kept playing in the odd few tournaments here and there. And I played for money. Uh, I played some of the members for money that we had to keep quiet because gambling was frowned upon uh, at a place like Walton Ethan these days. But yeah, it was, a, it was a great journey. And I found I actually enjoyed that more than traveling the world playing golf. I, I enjoyed the interaction of the members. There was a lot of politicians, members uh, of Walton Heath, uh, a lot of newspaper guys who became, I became very friendly with. And I just enjoyed the whole scene. I, I enjoyed learning about something I knew nothing about because up till then, my life was purely up in the morning, clubs in the hand, bed in the evening. So I rather enjoyed that and stayed there probably longer than I, I should have. And tell us a little bit about being made a life member in 2019 and what that meant to you. It meant a lot because it, it, it was a long journey. Once I got there in, in 1973, I stayed there until 89. I was assistant for four years and tournament pro for 12. Uh, and when they said, look, we'd like you to become a, an honorary member, I knew how few honorary members they had and who they were. Uh, so it was, a, it was a huge honor. And I've been back two or three times. Uh, and played golf there and, and back for, for lunch on a couple of occasions. I think it's one of the great golf clubs. You know, Winston Churchill was a, a member there in years gone by. Lord George was uh, another. But they had many famous members in all different walks of life. Um, so to be part of that was, was great. And it was one of the saddest days of my life when I lost my European Tour card in 89. And as a tournament profession, there was no point in having one of them if he couldn't play. So... Uh, that was a very sad time. Um, but, you know, it passed. It was just part of life. You mentioned a, a couple of newspapermen, Ewan, and uh, was that the first time your your interest in the media perhaps was, was peaked? 
or it was opened your eyes to to what else was out there, perhaps um, from a from a golf point of view. Definitely, uh, the racing correspondent of the Daily Mirror was a guy called Monty Court. He became a a good pal. Bill Martin was the cartoonist in the Sunday Express, and a second father to me was Sir John Juno. He was the he was the editor of the Sunday Express for twenty seven years. At a young age, he kind of took me under his wing, and and we played golf every Monday with Sir Adam Thompson. He was a chairman of British Caledonian Airways at that time. And that became part of my circle of friends. Certainly, they were a lot older than me, but I was like a sponge with them. I I was keen to learn everything they knew, and and they knew plenty. So, yeah, that's how I got into that. And newspapers started to interest me. Uh, General World News started to interest me. And I suppose it was. That was probably the first stepping stone to, to where I am now. You know, in, the, in those days, you were, you were still travelling, though, to some very interesting places. And one of those, of course, was Zambia. And uh, that guy was tragically killed there, David Moore. Uh-huh. Did you play in that tournament, Ewan? I did. It was up in Mafalera in the Copper Belt. And he was playing with a chap called Gary Smith. Or he was staying with a chap and, and played a lot of golf with Gary Smith. They were big buddies. And we woke up to the news that this had happened the night before, and tragic. David was was one of the great guys uh, from London, a real London lad, and a superb golfer. But something that night went terribly wrong, and and we lost David. And of course, Kenneth Kahunda was a keen golfer himself. The the, the ex president of, of uh, Zambia, who who passed away just a couple of months ago, but he was a very keen golfer. You you must have met him and played on his. I think he had a personal golf course, didn't he? He looked upon Brian Barnes uh, as a son. It was always Kenneth Kahunda's son is Brian Barnes. And, and Brian, as you know, was my next door neighbour for many years. Uh, I played in the State House golf course often with him, always with Brian and a chap called David Perry, who I think was uh, ambassador to Sweden in yeah. the end for Zambia, but a, a great character as well. And we enjoyed these times. It was always before the Zambian Open. We, we would finish in the Copper Belt, fly down to Lusaka and play golf with KK, as we called him, um, on the Monday. And, and that got the week of the Zambian Open started. And, and winning the Zambian Open because of the, the friendship I had with Dr. Kenneth was, uh, was great. Uh, that was a special day in my life as well. And on a great golf course, Lusaka is... I think one of the great golf courses in the world. You away from golf. I understand that that you were a keen footballer as a youngster, and and that you miraculously escaped a fire in 1985. Tell us a little bit about that day. Yeah, that was uh, that was a sad day. A, a day in May uh, at Valley Parade was the the name of the football ground of Bradford. Um, the European Tour were playing that week in Moortown, and I'd just finished the third round with Gary Player. Um, we played the, the third round together there, finished around uh, two o'clock. And I used to have a friend I stayed with uh, up in that part of the world, a, a chap called Mike Farrow, who was a very close friend of the Bradford chairman, Stafford Higginbot, his name was. And this was a, a celebration day for Bradford. They were about to get promoted. Uh, the place was full. Uh, atmosphere was wonderful. And we got there about five minutes after kickoff, and took our places in the director's box, and everyone had a smile on their face. Uh, 
And I can remember who I was sitting beside to this day. It's one of these days that never leave you. And a fire started on the, the left-hand side of where we were sitting, near the corner flag. And one of the Bradford players took a throw-in, and then he turned round, and the game stopped while the smoke was coming out. And within three minutes, the stand was, was in flames because it was an old wooden stand with a whole lot of rubbish probably underneath it. It was quite a windy day as well. So the flames were, were blasted by the, by the wind. And the scenes that followed that were horrific. Um, we were always taught never to run onto the pitch uh, as kids. I always go out the back door. Somebody had shut the back door simply because the place was full. You know, the, the ground was to capacity because of the day that they were celebrating. Mm. So Mike threw me over the, the barrier and I landed on my head by the dugout, um, semi-conscious, uh, dragged into the centre circle, and then we turned and looked back. And... <sighs> Hard to explain. Yeah, yeah. 58 people killed that day and, and you still have your ticket stub, don't you? I do. It's uh, it's in my my desk upstairs. I don't know why I could keep it because it's it's not something you want to be reminded of when you you think of the horror that went on around you, policeman's hair on fire, and the chap he was sitting beside him, and and two two young kids, I think twins, and you see them and they're, they're trying to get out, and I think I think we all thought it was going to be a a day to forget, but I don't think we realised just how bad it was yeah. until the following morning and, and saw the state of the place and you had players running about looking for their wives and kids and terrible it was just hey. hellish fortunately uh, football's moved on you uh, and obviously things have progressed from a safety point of view but you're still a, an ardent fan of am i going to get this right uh Arbroath? Is, is that your club in scotland yeah, beautifully, uh, beautifully mentioned. Absolutely. Oh, well done, Bill. Um, uh, hey. My my father came from Arbroath, uh, and his brother grew up about uh, half a mile from the football ground. His brother was on the board of Arbroath Football Club, but my father was a professional golfer by then. And I don't know how it happened, but I hadn't been back for many years. All our holidays uh, as kids were up in, in that part of the world. That was before package holidays and flying to Spain and Portugal and things like that. You made your own fun in your own place. Uh, so I got to know quite a lot of people. And I bumped into the manager at the Masters. And I had no idea who he was because although I followed our growth, I didn't follow it closely enough to know who was running it and, and what was the names of the players or... And he said, look, we'd like you to be an ambassador for uh, Arbroath so you can promote the club wherever you go. Or And so that was that. that. That's how I'm an ambassador. I'm a season ticket holder. Unfortunately, it's 550 miles away from where I'm sitting now. <laughs> so I, I, don't go, I don't go up there every Saturday. But I would, I would love to, and, and I will do, but once I have a little bit more time to myself, I, I will. I'll, I'll probably spend more time in Scotland when I finish work, um, and that will be one of my port of calls. Gayfield Park, just remember that. It's one of the great stadiums. It's it's almost in the North Sea. It's it's the coldest stadium in the world. It holds about 4,700 people. 
and it's just a delightful place to be. And there's steak and haggis pies are legendary. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's Pete Casey's interest. <laughs> you and um, I'm curious as to your transition into commentary and, and, and when and where were you where you, with your game, with your golf game, you knew you'd got as far as you could perhaps, or what determined you getting into golf commentary and when did that happen? Well, the last event I won was in Nigeria, and, and that was a big money event um, with a reasonable field that played on on uh, wild grass and half sand uh, with browns, not greens. And that was in 84, so that, I felt, should have been the, the launching pad to, to continue. My father died in 85 at the age of 62, and I think when he went, a little bit of me went as well as far as golf was concerned because... We'd spent so much time together, uh, so many great memories of playing together on so many different golf courses. And I knew I had a putting problem that, that was going to be very difficult to overcome. I feel terribly ashamed that I didn't overcome it. I feel embarrassed I didn't overcome it. When I look at someone like Bernard Langer, who I played alongside for the 10 previous years before that, and I thought, well, it is time to move on. And I, I played in a few programs. I, I, played in a lot of company golf days. And then when I left Walton Heath in 89, in these days, as a PGA member, you, you had to be attached to a golf club. And Brian Barnes had just opened his own golf club uh, in a place called West Chilterns, where I live now. Uh, Max Faulkner was uh, involved in that as well. And he said, come down and be assistant, and then you can play in all these local events uh, as a PGA member and, and a qualified assistant at a golf club. And I was in the, his shop one day, and Brian was having a, what we would call it, a liquid lunch. <laughs> That's my kind of lunch. <laughs> he was well into the second barrel at the time. <laughs> um, the, the phone rang, and I recognised the voice. It was, it was a chap called Andrew Miller, who was director of golf at the Emirates in Dubai. And he said, I was hoping to talk to Brian because we need a commentator for a new satellite station that's opened up in the Middle East. And he said, is Brian about? And I said, well, not at the minute. No, I said, he'll be back tomorrow, uh, <laughs> even though even though he was a few yards away. But I said, if, if, you're, looking for someone to, yeah, if you're looking for someone to do it, I'm your man. I'll, I'll, I'll be able <laughs> to do that. And he said, well, that'd be fine. He says, I never thought of that. That'll be fine. I'll send you an air ticket. Uh, it's four days, six hours a day, Channel 33, and it will be Arabic coverage, which I thought, well, that's fine. So I made my way there, um, got to the golf course, and we had a presenter uh, called Richard Coram, who was the manager of the Human League yeah. pop group. And he was a lovely guy. So he opened the program, and I was on my own uh, in the commentary box. So he, he said, you commentator today is you. And for the first hour, all, all we saw was the, the club at, at, at the top of the player's head like this and then through and then back like this. And Hamid Mubarak was the, the director, Arabic director, and he says, how's things going? And I said, well, it's good, but we kind of need to see the ball. You know, we, we need to see where the ball goes. <laughs> need to zoom the, out. That, that's the important thing. <laughs> and he says... He says, we, we can sort that out, don't worry about that. And I had all this Arabic talk back in my, my ears, and I was thinking, this is a bit more difficult than I thought it might. By Saturday, and I still have the tapes today, by Saturday, their coverage 
was as good as any coverage that you see today. Wow. That, that, that'd been used to camel racing, uh, Dakar car racing, um, wadi bashing, which is driving cars in the, in the desert, that they'd been used to that. The minute you said, this is kind of what you need to do, you need to follow the ball and, and see it land, and they said, yeah, it's fine. The weekend coverage was absolutely outstanding. Um, but 6,000 year old, and the first time I thought, well, this is the way it is. It's not that bad. It'll be okay. I was probably <laughs> talking a, a tremendous amount of rubbish, I, I would think. <laughs> when I got home, Eurosport was the sports station of Sky Television at the time. And a man rang me up, a guy called John Colleen, who became a lifelong friend, a producer that was with me every tournament for the next two years telling me what I need to get rid of and, and what you need to keep without ruining any confidence. Just then I didn't like the way you did that. There's another way of doing it. And he said, look, Sky, I've got, I've got five or six tournaments and would like you to do the commentary. And that's how I moved into a sports station of Sky. I, I say that because Eurosport was eventually sold by Rupert Murdoch to TF1 in France the following year. So I had no job to go to then. And then I got picked up by Supersport, not Supersport, that's here, Screen Sport, which was part of the European Sports Network. And I did the American golf in the evening and the European golf in the afternoon with Alex Hay uh, for a year. And then they went bust. And I was back to where I was in 89 then. I didn't have a job. I went to the BBC and they said, you're not the person we're looking for. We've got Bruce Critchley, we've got Peter Ellis, obviously. Uh, Alex A. Clive Clark was part of their team. So they had a very strong uh, broadcasting team. And, and I went back and asked them again, and they said no. Uh, and they took on Mark James, I think, later on, and Ken Brown was there as well. And Sky Sports started up their own sports station in 92. Uh, they got the golf, some of the golf in 93, five European events. They got the PGA Tour in 1993. Um, they had the PGA Championship as well. So things were moving in the right direction there. Um, the boss of Sky Sports was an Australian called David Hill, who was a genius uh, as far as television is concerned. He was the one who put the score in the top left-hand corner of screens at rugby matches and football matches. That was all his idea. And he became president of Fox Sports uh, in the United States. So I had great people to begin with, and I was produced, which a lot of commentators today are not produced. They're, they're given a microphone, mm. they go in there, they talk a whole lot of statistics. Uh, we didn't have statistics really back then, whereas now you have people who write on the internet with every statistic that, that you want. So I was very lucky I had these people to guide me and, and knock the rough edges, and there was quite a few of them uh, <clears throat> off, off me. Yeah. Well, just on that, I'd be interested to know what kind of feedback you got and how you evolved as a, as a commentator. Is it the art of seamlessly integrating facts with the picture on the TV so that you take the viewer on a journey? Or, you know, what do you think about when you're in the commentary booth? Well, back then, uh, as I said, there wasn't really any stats. Uh, you maybe find out that he had 14 of 18 greens, uh, 11 of 14 fairways, and, and had 27 putts, which... I think it's what a viewer still wants to hear today. You can work out how well he's playing by these stats. Uh, the Ryder Cup I did on Moen in, in 91 uh, for Eurosport, that was 
War on the Shore. Three hours. Yeah. Um, in three days. Three days. Yeah, I did the lot. <laughs> did the lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was thirteen hours. The second day when Sevi was having an argument with raising it or somebody else or whoever it might have been it was something to do with a, a change of bowl and the eighth tee. So that day went right into darkness with Sevi and Ollie. But yeah, I did that totally on my own. And at that point, that's what I thought television commentary was about. I didn't think you'd be lucky enough to have someone next next to you where you could take a breather and, and you could integrate with that person. But that's the way it was then. I still don't use stats uh, as rarely as I possibly can, unless they support what's on the screen. Um, I have some commentators now that have a, a computer, an iPad and a phone, and they don't actually watch the screen. They're looking at these three machines they have and to say, well, he's got a, a 32% left tendency missing the fairway. And you think, well, yeah, but we're not on him. And he's hitting his second shot. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I know my first producer would have said, listen, the best thing you can do is put them away, concentrate on the screen, and try and tell the viewer something that he can't see on the screen. Yeah, That's your job, and you need to get better at it. So, again, that was advice that I think if I didn't have, I probably wouldn't be doing this now. He was that good. I saw you mention in a tweet uh, your admiration for the tennis commentator Andrew Castle, uh, Ewan, and how his use of stats, he doesn't mm. overload the viewer mm. with too many stats, which is obviously what you just touched on. Um, that, I imagine that's the point you're trying to make, but is there someone else perhaps that you admired in any sport from a commentating point of view or modelled yourself on? No, John's uh, first words to me were, don't copy anyone else. You do this yourself. If it doesn't work out, it was probably not the job for you anyway, but you don't copy anyone. And obviously Peter Ellis was the the main voice of golf uh, at that time. I, I was a great friend of James Hunt, uh, the racing driver. We used to play a lot of golf together. And I thought James was a brilliant commentator and he had the perfect foil with Murray Walker. And I think that was a time when everyone understood in television that great commentary comes in pairs. It's no longer one person. And Murray would be jumping all over the place, screaming and shouting, and James would be the one telling him to be quiet because he's moving into second gear. And by the time he hits the middle of the straight, he'd be 194 miles an hour. James actually put you in the car. I, I thought he did that brilliantly. I also thought uh, before that, a rugby commentator called Bill McLaren. Oh, yeah. I, I know nothing of I know absolutely nothing about rugby, but I listened to a, a Scotland-England match with Bill commentating and the way he dropped in facts when they were waiting for a line-out, when they were trying to organise the scrum, he would never do it over play because he felt the viewer wanted to see all the action. When the action stopped, he could pop in and do this. And I had, I had lunch with him at uh, Glen Eagles uh, not long before he died. He'd been retired then. And he gave me one or two great pointers, very simple things. Uh, but try and remember that the viewer is the most important person in this. You're the least important. The viewer is the most important. And the game is in between the two. Brilliant. You know, just just moving away a little bit from, from commentary, uh, Ewan, I'd sort of go back. Uh, 1964, I think it was, 
Tony Lima came over and won the Open Championship at uh, at, at St Andrews. And did you ever see him play? Were you there? I, I was there. I was there that uh, that week because obviously it wasn't very far from Edinburgh. And it was the first week I'd met Peter Ellis. I was nine years of age. And I got Dennis Hutchinson's autograph. Gee whiz. <laughs> so, 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 you know. But that is a collective about... <laughs> because, you know, he only learned to spell his name six months before that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I... I, re- I reckon Dennis must have been in his 60s then, back yeah. in 1964. Yeah. <laughs> it's about 140 now. Yeah, in but the shade. No, I, re- I remember getting Dennis's uh, autograph. I remember Champagne Tommy Lima winning the, the Open then, and uh, I met Peter Ennis for the first time. My father knew Peter, obviously, they were somewhere around the same age, but it was uh, it was glorious. The first big tournament I'd been to it was the Open Championship. It was at the home of golf with... And we used to think the going to St Andrews was just like you nipping out to play a few holes in your home course because it was so close to Edinburgh. It's only when you leave Scotland you realise, I think, just what a, a special place it is. How some of the players, the Scottish players in those days, were not only wonderful players, but they were they were some some terrific characters. And I'm thinking of people like John Panton, Eric Brown, Ronnie Shade. Uh, obviously not not Scottish, but uh, Brian Bar- Brian Barnes was semi Scottish, wasn't he? Anglo, Anglo Scottish. <laughs> but t- just tell us tell us about some of those those players. Well, I can tell you the story of uh, 1977. The Northern Open was at Royal Dorna, special place right up the north of Inverness, and I didn't have a driving license, um, or I couldn't afford to hire a car. I think it was probably the second one. And Ronnie said. I'll take you up because I used to play a lot of golf with Ronnie, where Norman Wood was a, another one you're probably thinking about there, Harry Bannerman, uh, all, all of these people. And Ronnie said, I'll take you up. And he had a Datsun 280ZX. Now, if you had a Datsun 280ZX, it was like having a Ferrari today. It was magnificent. <laughs> so off we went. <laughs> and it was two rounds on the final day. And Ronnie had finished about an hour and a half before me. And I, I was out in the golf course thinking, I'm a bit worried about this. How am I going to get home? And I won the, the Northern Oak. So I've, I've got the trophy. And I see Ronnie sitting in the, the back of the clubhouse. And I said, I, I thought you'd be gone by now. No, no, no. He says, I'll wait and take you home. And he waited two and a half hours from the time he finished by the time I'd finished to drive me home. Oh, what a guy. That's, that's, this, that's the way things were uh, in these days. There was no courtesy cars. You looked after each other. And Ronnie left us far too young an age, but a brilliant golfer. And if I remember rightly, finally the British Amateur, I think, with Bobby Cole. Does that sound right? Back in 67? Not sure. Yeah, well, they, Bobby Cole and, and Ronnie played uh, amateur golf. And Ronnie was our best player. And I think at that time, as an amateur, Bobby Cole was, was probably yours. Yes. Um, but great people. Uh, different days, of course, very different days. But Ronnie was special. Eric Brown lived 100 yards from my father's pro shop uh, in his latter years. So he used to come round and, and have a coffee until it was whiskey time, <laughs> which was only straight after the coffee, whenever <laughs> that time was. Uh, um, but great characters uh, and great players. Uh, you know, golf, there was a, a community. Everybody knew everybody. Uh, if you needed any help, they were there to help you. Practice rounds were arranged. Lifts and cars were arranged. 
it, it was just a great time. And, and you had that, I'm sure, down in South Africa as well. But things have moved on a long way from there. You and I just want to go back to St. Andrews, which you touched on earlier. Obviously, it's the 150 Open there next year, and that's special for for a host of reasons. But you're a massive fan of, of golf courses that start and end in towns, aren't you? I am. I like that. North Berwick would be one of them as well. There's one up the Murray coastline, which is in between Aberdeen and Inverness. It's called Murray Golf Club, probably better known as Lussie Mouth. Uh, that's another one. Starts in town and, and in you come. And I think that's one of the joys of, of St Andrews because you wander all the way out virtually one way to the Eden Estuary, make your way over the Elysian Fields, and then you see the spire uh, in town and, and the abbey where old Tom's buried. And the place is just enriched in history. And I worry about St Andrews, the way the game's going, because I can see someone shooting 58 or 59 right there, which would take away an awful lot of its mystique if that happened. You and I just want to return to, to commentating and, and when you first, you mentioned you spent many years on your own uh, commentating on golf, but who was your first partner? Uh, because I want to sort of segue from that into some of the other men you've uh, you've shared the commentating booth with after that. Uh, for Sky, uh, Alex, hey, I, I wanted to join because we'd had a at screen sport, we'd had the, the PGA Tour and we'd had the European Tournaments uh, together there. It was from a voiceover booth in Carnaby Street uh, in London. Alex didn't have the time. He was a great coach. He was an artist. Uh, he was director of golf at Woburn. And he said he didn't have the time to do that. So Sky went for Bruce Critchley, who was part of the BBC team then. Uh, Bruce felt it was time to, to leave there. And it was a great opportunity for him to have a full-time commentary job rather than just the half dozen tournaments the BBC had throughout the course of the year. And Bruce and I joined uh, together in 94 and stayed until 2016, so nearly a quarter of a century. Uh, and he retired and he's down the West Country now playing bridge and enjoying himself. So he was my first main partner. Uh, the following year of 95, Butch Harmon joined Sky, um, which became obviously a great friend and, and a wonderful colleague, you know, just a fantastic colleague that could tell you stories about everything and great coach. He knew all the players, he knew what they were trying to do. Uh, so the book stayed for 25 years as well. So these were my first two. And since then, there's been quite a few others and a few players as well that, who have come in now and again and, and joined us. I've, I've been with nearly 300 since the start Gee, of the career. Well. Wow. Um, but not all for a whole tournament. Some would come in um, and just do a guest spot for maybe an hour, a couple of times a week, things like that. And some of the, the modern players are actually very good. Sergio Garcia is probably the best of the lot of them. And he understands the game. Strangely enough, brought up the same way. Uh, his father, very much a, a professional all his life, and Sergio running about, you know, at his heels as a youngster. Uh, Sergio is very good. Uh, he, he was first class. But there's been a lot of, uh, we've had Ronnie Corbett, we've had Bruce Forsyth there in there, Terry Wogan, we've had in now and again when we did some celebrity events down in Wales. So it's been great. It's been a great journey. You meet so many different people from different walks of life. I think that's one of the great things about golf. You intersperse that with television and 
and you you know just about everyone if you want to get to know them. Yeah. Bill, sorry, before well, you ju- before you jump yeah. in there yeah. with, with your with your follow up, I just wanna come in then with regards Sergio and Colin Montgomery and with Tiger Woods, you've never been shy to call players out when when they've done stuff wrong and you, or you haven't agreed with what they've done on the course. Did you have any opinion on, on Sergio? I recall he went through a bit of a bad patch a few years ago and had a bit of a temper. Did he know how you felt about that? I wasn't doing the event. He had the, the main problem that, that was in Saudi Arabia when he dug up the bunkers and dug up the greens. Sergio obviously just having a bad day. We all have them. Uh, Monty was funny because... He was he was having an argument with a seven-year-old boy uh, at the Gulf National. He was shouting at him because the boy was either making a noise or he was moving. Uh, and I called that out. I said, that's the last thing you need when you're trying to bring young people into the game. But he could go home tonight and say to his parents, I never want to see a golf tournament again. So I said something like that. And then he, he did it again at the London Club uh, in the European Open that, telling a cameraman to shut up and, and all that stuff. And and I called him out on that as well. And and we avoided each other for, for the best part of two months. And it was ridiculous. We, we were walking into hotels and we'd see each other and he would go one way and I'd go the other. So I wrote him a letter. And in that letter, it said, look, this is, this is childish. You know, it's my job to say what's on the screen. It's your job to go out and play golf and, and that day you didn't. You behaved like a kid. And that doesn't mean to say we can't be friends or whatever. And then after he got the letter, the next tournament, we bumped into each other just going into a lift in the hotel. And we burst out laughing. I said, you know, that was so stupid. But I said, you can't behave like that and expect me to be quiet. Because if I go back to my television station, my boss is going to say, why are we paying you? You know, you, you ignored what was on the screen. It was obviously wrong. And you ignored it. You didn't say nothing about it. So I would have got in trouble and probably could have lost my job. And I explained all that to Colin. I know he says, I just get like that in the golf course. He says, but he's not like that at all, off it. He's, he's, he's a delight yep. to be with. And he's now one, one of my closest friends. <laughs> so you got over it? <laughs> I've, yeah, I've been to his house uh, for dinner with his family. And, and we're close. And I've actually seen him hit some golf balls at his home course at his request. And, and discussed it, and, and we are big mates now. Right? The Tiger one didn't end quite so happily, I'm afraid. Explain, carry Come on. Come on, give, give us, give on. us more on that, Ewan. Come on. <laughs> ah, you know, it's water under the bridge then, but it was on the 12th green in Dubai. I remember like it was yesterday, and he, there was three groups behind him, final day, and he hit a poor putt at 12, four feet short, and marked the ball and just spat on the green. And I thought, here we go. Because I, I knew whatever I said was not going to be right. Uh, somebody wouldn't like it and, and, and somebody might like it, but the chances are most people wouldn't like it. So I said, it's something like, you know, it, with Woods being an inspiration, a great inspiration, not just to golfers, but to sports people across the world, there are times when he's, he's arrogant and petulant. And what he's done there on the 12th green is about as low as it gets. And Howard Clark was alongside me, and he was about to get steamed in, and I, I reached over and switched the microphone off, and he looked at me. I said, listen, if, if you say anything, you're going to be involved in what I'm going to be involved in once this is finished. So I said, just wait until the picture changes and then carry on as if nothing's happened, which he did. And uh, the flack I took from from that, the, the hate mail, the, 
don't come over to America because you won't be coming back in less than a box. And Jeez. I mean, horrific stuff. Not stuff that bothered me because I didn't make the mistake. If Tiger Woods hadn't spat in the green, none of this would have happened. The, the way I got over it was there was a, a gentleman from somewhere in, in England wrote me a letter saying, thank you for what you did with Woods because it was quarter to 11 in the morning in British time when it happened. Uh, quarter to three in the afternoon, and I was sitting with my son, who's nine, who's Tiger Woods daft, like most young kids were. Tiger was the king. Everything Tiger did, they wanted to do. And he said, when you pointed that out, I was able to speak to him and say, look, you can copy much of what Tiger does, but never, ever, ever do that, ever. And I thought, well, if, if one person has said that, there's probably more people thinking about it. Yeah. But I had a close friendship uh, with Tiger through Butch Harmon uh, around the 2000 time when he was he was knocking everybody uh, out of sight in the golf course. Yeah. And I used to get up uh, early at some of the events uh, at six, go up, see Tiger play nine holes, keep my distance from him and Butch because obviously they were working. But Tiger would come over and tell stories. He, he's a great joke teller, loved telling jokes, and he was, he was very good at it as well. And I had a, a relationship with him, not that I would go out to dinner or, or anything like that, but if I saw him on the range, you know, how you doing? Or, and I may be standing watching hit balls for, for six or seven shots before moving on. And I, I felt quite privileged to be able to do that with, with someone so great uh, in our sport. But that all finished, obviously, in Dubai because he was fined for, for what he did. And uh, I never, I've never actually been able to speak to him again. Uh, not even not. It just walk straight past so a disappointing end to that one there and i have a picture of tiger Uh, it was it was painted by a a lady golfer rebecca hudson Uh, she was english champion british champion and she was great artist she painted a a portrait of tiger which i took over and he signed and there's a really nice message on that uh, from 2001 so I feel I've been very fortunate to see someone play the game as well as he played it. Uh, the great things he did, uh, the following he had, the, the way he lifted the game, uh, the way he found golf to to have another gear. Uh, the people who are playing golf today for the money they're playing for, yeah. much of that is down to Woods. So I would say Woods is probably the greatest ever golfer uh, of, of my time. Uh, Nicholas, probably the greatest ever champion, which are two different things, but disappointing it ended that way because at a young age tiger was an immaculate well-behaved and well-mannered young man just quickly getting back to that uh, that painting that you've got of tiger woods he called me the other day he'd like to get that painting back because he wants to change the message <laughs> well well you'll have you'll have to be my agent because he's not talking to me Dell. <laughs> What do you make of the the current crop of players out there? You, you know, kind of post Woods, there's obviously a few players that are that, that are setting the mark. Colin Morikawa was obviously hugely impressive, winning the Open. But the current crop of players, both from a playing point of view, how they shape up, and and perhaps any characters you think that that, that are worth mentioning, because obviously times, like you said, have changed. They aren't the characters we used to have, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So, so who kind of catches your eye now, and who do you like? Well, it's also a different game than it was then because the equipment has brought the average player much closer to the great player. You know, if you go back to the great ball strikers of the 80s, early 90s, you take Nick Price would be in there uh, for sure. Greg Norman as a driver, 
uh, would be in there, as would Ian Woosnam. Now, if you said, who's the best driver of the ball on, on the tour, you wouldn't have an answer. And I'm able to give you that answer, having played alongside them with a golf club that you needed to be perfect for it to work properly. Now you have a, a golf club that you don't need that. And, and you've got 80 good drivers on the PGA Tour. But who's the best? I don't think you could tell me who the best driver is. I, I certainly couldn't mm. because they're all the same. Yep. The equipment has made them all the same. Uh, they're fitter. Players are fitter. The other thing we should remember is agronomy, uh, the way that's moved on. Dale will tell you we putted on greens that were six and seven on the stint meter because that's the way it was. We didn't know any better. We expected every green to be like that. Now every green is is 12 to 13. Uh, smooth, fine grasses rather than the coarse grasses we had then. Uh, courses are better prepared. The courses they play in the United States are all too similar. Uh, it, it's one examination only. Hit the ball as far as you can. You've got soft greens, so if you're coming from the rough, it doesn't matter. So I wouldn't say anyone really stands out. Uh, Dustin Johnson is heading towards 40. It's taken him quite a long time to get the second major, which he managed in uh, Augusta National uh, after winning at Oakmont. Morikawa's won two out of seven. Justin Thomas has got one. John Rams now managed to pick one up. And if you look at all these players, you would say they're great golfers. But they're not a Gary player. They're not a Jack Nicholas. They're not an Arnold Palmer because they stood out because they were so gifted at what they're doing. The others, because of the equipment, have been brought so much closer together. The difference being now when we played, and Dale will back this up, that maybe 10 players could win that week. Now, you can probably say out of 156, 80, 90 are, are capable of winning. So no one stands out. Uh, the way John Ram finished the US Open stands out because of the way he did it. But no, I, I wouldn't say we have a, a Tiger Woods. I wouldn't say we have a, a Palmer, a Ben Hogan, um, a Nicholas. I think we have an awful lot of good players. And, and that trend will continue unless we change the equipment. And if we change, is that a step backwards? Or is it a step forwards in professional golf? Because amateurs obviously want all the help they can get. And, and, and that's the way it should be because it's, it's a hobby for them. It's the, the time that they choose to spend away from work. So that's another question, and, and one I don't think anyone's really got the answer to right now. But no one stands out for me. You can add Sander Shuffley to that. You've got McElroy that I haven't even mentioned. Um, they're all very good golfers, but there is no one like Woods and the, the ones I've mentioned a few moments ago. You mentioned working with Butch Harmon, and, and you mentioned earlier talk when you were at um, Walton Heath that you enjoyed coaching. And that's something that stayed with you. And, I mean, you do still enjoy that and you still do coach one or two people now and again. Uh, not, not so much uh, in the last year or two, but uh, Gary Evans was one that I taught. And Gary came to the house uh, on Christmas Eve 2000. Uh, in debt, two young kids, lost his confidence, had an operation on his hand, and he went from being one of the great amateurs to a decent professional, to someone who, who just wasn't functioning as a golfer. So we went out and hit some balls on Boxing Day, freezing cold uh, here in England. And 
he was a very easy guy to teach. It was difficult for me to begin with because he had a four-knuckle grip because of the, the operation he had. So I turned him from a drawer into the feeder. As I said, well, a strong grip, you're always going to be worried about the left-hand side. We need to get you to move the ball the other way, left to right. So we did that. He won about half a million euro in three or four years. Plus all his contracts and everyone was back in business. He was able to pay off his debts and... And he was very grateful. Uh, funny enough, he's injured now and should be playing on the Legends too, but he's had another problem. But that was the first one. Uh, the second one was Darren Clark, who I met at the Irish Open, Carlton House, 2006. And he'd been going through a tough time. He'd just had a ride with his coach and we've talked for an hour or two, walked nine holes, and I told him what I thought. And you're dealing here with a high-quality talent. I mean, you're dealing with someone, if you blindfolded him, he would still get rated in 66. And I, I always think that's strange with coaches who try and change great players. You know, they're, they're great players because they have that talent. All you have to do is tap into it and find something that works for them. And he should have won that. He actually should have won that tournament. He finished third. And that was the start of a, a closer friendship than we, we had before. And it was a tremendously difficult time for, for Dan because his wife, Heather, was passing away. It was a question of days rather than, than weeks. And that happened at the Hoylake Open of 2006, where he shot 69 the first round and then just couldn't cope the second round. And the two or three days later, uh, Heather was gone. I changed then from being his coach to, to being his mate because I felt that's what he needed. He needed somebody to, to shout at. He needed somebody to have an argument with somebody to, to hear some encouraging words that would somehow see a way forward. His two children at that time, Conor and Tyrone, were, were eight and six, and they're grieving for the mother. All of a sudden, Darren's a single dad, and he's thinking about trying to play golf. Now, a couple of weeks after Heather passing, Ian Woosden had said, I'll give you a wild card for the Ryder Cup, which was at the K-Club. And Darren rang me up and said, look, do you think we can get my game in some kind of shape to play in this Ryder Cup. And I said, yeah, I said, it, it, it will probably take an hour or two, but no more than that. What worries me is, will you be able to cope with this Ryder Cup in Ireland? When you walk to the functions, Heather won't be beside you. I says, I've sorted that. He says, my mother will do that and my sister will do this. So he, did, he was beginning to think he could play in the, in the Ryder Cup. And then uh, four o'clock on the Friday morning, the phone rings, four o'clock in the morning, and it's him. And he says, can you come out and uh, and see me on the range? And I said, no, I can't, because we're on here at, at six o'clock. And he, he was panicking. And I fully expected it. And then I sent him a message when he went to the range, and I said, look, go and speak to Pete Kellen, who, who was Darren's coach on and off all the way through his career, uh, from the time he started to to where he stands now. Because I knew Pete would find the right words. He was experienced enough as a, as a golfer to know that this is not about coaching anyone. This is about sending a guy to the first two with the whole of Ireland cheering for him, alongside his best mate, Westwood. And when they walked up uh, from the Putton Green to the first two, all the mics were switched off. Now, now Butch is a tough guy. I mean, I'd, I'd expect Butch to cope with anything, but he, he didn't cope with that picture. So he switched off, I switched off, and we just let him walk with Westwood all the way to the first two. 
<laughs> my, my immediate thought was, I hope Ivan is not standing too far in front of Darren when he's going to hit this tee shot, because if it had come off the, t- the toe of the club or the heel of the club, it would not have surprised me and probably wouldn't have surprised anyone else. And he biffed it 305 yards down the fairway, popped the wedge in the green and knocked the putt in for a three. <laughs> Amazing. So, Amazing. Yeah, it was uh, the two weeks before that Ryder Cup, I took off work and spent every day with him at home, at his house, driving back to Maine in the evening. Gary Lineker uh, was a member of the same club that, that Darren played at, Queenwood. And Gary came out a couple of times and played a decent golf for himself. And Darren was getting all upset about hitting decent shots and not holding any putts. And Lineker turned to him and said, you know, I never mind. It never bothered me, he says, but I missed open goals and sit-ups, he says. What bothered me if I wasn't in that position to do it? Mm. And Dan looked at me and says, what does that mean? I said, well, what he's saying is you keep hitting your irons close and eventually you'll find a way to knock in a few putts. And one day, one day he was in a terrible mood. And I, I said, you're in the mood. I said, you're nervous. Of course I'm nervous, he says. Shaking like a leaf, laugh out. Moods up down. It was a very difficult two weeks, but two weeks I was very grateful to be able to give time, which you cannot always do, but give time to someone that you were close to and someone who needed it. Oh, I think that is such a great story, Ewan. Can we touch a little bit on on your Ryder Cup experience as a commentator? Because you've been fortunate enough to commentate every Ryder Cup, I think, since 1995. And there are so many moments over the years that must stand out for you. Tell us a little bit about them. 95 was was probably the one that stands out because when I was growing up, Bernard, Bernard Gallagher, Gallagher was my yep. my idol because he came from Bathgate, just a few miles away from where I lived, and Bernard was the the young star. He was uh, he was going to be the next stop golfer we had in uh, in Britain, and having looked at Natalie in 91, he should have really won in 93 because. The tail end of his team was his four strongest players, and they didn't perform. And then we come to 95, where you have an aging team, a team that were moving into the autumn of their career. Seve being one, Mark James another, Howard Clark another, uh, Nick Faldo um, still with a major to win, but heading towards that time. And, and Corey Pavin chipping in the, on the Saturday night to go two ahead, and you think, I've seen this film before, it, so close in 91, so close in 93. And, and with Pavin's chip in, you felt the Ryder Cup was taken away. But that next day, uh, the mates that I'd played with, the, the ones I've mentioned, the, you could add Cosentino Rocca, I think he was in that as well. Mark James holds a bunker shot at four. Seve somehow takes Lehman to all square at the turn, having never seen the golf course. Howard Clark is a hole in one against Peter Jacobson. And somehow... They turned it round, and, and Faldo, who you would bank on hitting the 18th fairway, hits it in the trees, chips it out, but not just chips it out, chips it out to a distance where he could control the third shot from 93 or 4 yards, which he did. If he doesn't get down into the Ryder Cup's finish, it's gone America's way again, and, and Bernard's missed out for the third time. But, you know, he got down into the images of Seve and Faldo, who never got on, and, and you can understand that because they were they were up against each other every single week in, in every big tournament uh, in the world of golf. So they were never going to be really close buddies. But the way they hugged and, and then, of course, managing to scramble the point with uh, Philip Walton, 
you know, put up to the whole save. Third time lucky for Gallagher. Ryder Cup's on Concord tonight. It's on its way back to Europe. Um, th- that's a long time ago. I mean, that, that's over a quarter of a century ago. But I, I remember that one time. It was the week that Butch Harmon joined Sky. And the, the commentary box was in the same town as the studio. So David Livingston and, and Butch Harmon were together. Bruce and I were together. And that was it. A couple of cameramen. And when I said these last words, we went to a commercial break and I'd just got them out before bubbling a little. Bruce was tissues. Uh, Bruce was a great crier. You know, he, he, Bruce was, a, he was the greatest amateur golfer, Bruce, but he's watching professional sport, but he loved great stories. He loved golfing stories. And I looked at him and he was wiping the tears away and I turned around and there was 20 people inside the studio and commentary box. And I never heard them coming in. And you would have felt with the movement in a studio, you would have heard that, felt that amount of people coming in. There was our bosses. Uh, there were some executives. There were some sponsors. Uh, other people at Sky producers that were were uh, were working in that area. And I looked and I couldn't believe it. And every one of them were either in tears or close to tears. And when we came back off the commercial break, only one chap wasn't crying. And thankfully, it was David Livingston, the, the presenter. And Butch was was a little weepy, even though he was American and, and the Americans had lost. I think it was just the stories of the week, the, the comeback, uh, the sadness of Seve uh, losing his grip on the game. And, and now we know why he lost it. We didn't know then. Uh, the Faldo finish... It, it was just a great story. Every match had a great story. And Bernard Gallagher finally had got his hands on, on that trophy. So that one I remember probably more than any other. The following one at Valderrama, I remember Seve telling Colin Montgomery how to play the pitch. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and Colin saying the best thing you can do is F off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so off he went in his buggy in the half. Um, Brookline obviously was was another amazing Ryder Cup. Um, it didn't finish in a, in a great way. I felt no, Brookline. They had a great captain in Ben Crenshaw, um, and it was a great comeback by the American side. Oh six, probably emotionally for me is is the one because Darren won three points out of three, and Ian Woosham, who also a very close friend, uh, was the captain then. You know, if you look at the Ryder Cup since Sky started covering them, because we never used to see much of the Ryder Cup, BBC, we would see three or four shots from the morning when they came on at lunchtime, and then you'd see them tee off and they'd go away a few horse races, and then they'd come back and you'd see the last few holes. But when Sky took it over, it was dawn till dusk, which is the way it is now. So you, your experience of a Ryder Cup as a television viewer was as close as it could be to someone who was actually at the venue. And and they've been rewarded with some amazing Ryder Cups, some really close ones, great victories, just a great story. And hopefully that will continue at Whistling Straits this year. Do you think it's ever possible that you could be a Ryder Cup captain? Me? Yeah. No? Well, I'm, I'm waiting on your next slide because this is this is obviously. <laughs> yeah, he's priming you for something. The reason I'm asking the question is because I think it's a travesty that Peter Alice was never asked. I think that's the case, but Peter Alice was a Ryder Cup player many times over. I wasn't, 
So I'm certainly not qualified to be a, a Ryder Cup captain, uh, an assistant captain. Not really, because I, I think they all have to be involved in the Ryder Cup. I, I think it's important that they've either won or they've lost the Ryder Cup and they know the difference between the two. And I think the way it is, is, is great. And I think our players who have won majors, uh, I think it's a wonderful way later on in their life as they head towards the senior golf, like Harrington is now, I think it's a great accolade to say, look, we'd like you to be the Ryder Cup captain. The one thing that disappointed me was Sandy Lyle. I think Sandy Lyle should have been a Ryder Cup captain as an Open champion, as a Masters champion, somewhere along the line. Paul Laurie, uh, another one, uh, a 1999 Open champion. They have been involved as assistant captains. And of course, we had such a wonderful run of major victories from European players that that they have plenty to choose from. I remember sitting down with Richard Hill one night who who ran the Ryder Cup for the best part of 20 years. We, we jotted down who would be captain, and we got to 2029 and Sergio Garcia. We actually had enough players who had won major championships, achieved much in the game. Garcia, one of the, the biggest point scorers in the, in the Ryder Cup, and we had captains all the way up to 2029. And, and this was like three or four years ago. And, and I imagine we'll have more major winners and more captains lined up for the, the 2030s. But I do think so you have to be... So who are the next few then? Ewan, can you remember who the next few in your mind or you and Richard Hill for the next couple? Who have you got in mind? Well, I would have to go and look at the list we had, but um, nothing comes into my mind right now. We've got Harrington. I would think Thomas Bjorn was not a, a major winner. Very close, but not quite. So I don't know who would be next. Uh, Westwood. It has to be Westwood, I guess. Yeah, Lee Westwood. Lee Westwood, and then uh, we may have someone else after that. I'm looking at someone in their in their forties right now. Any thoughts? Justin Rose. Poulter. Absolutely, Justin Rose. Ian Poulter and Sergio Garcia. You've got your next four captains right there, and right. and it, it would work quite nicely in the sense that that Ian Poulter's played a lot of his golf in America, so he'd be an away captain. Uh, you, you could put Sergio in there as well. You could have Westwood at home. So, yeah, they, they've got plenty to choose from and will continue to have because the European Tour produces an awful lot of good players. My final question, Ewan, is um, over the last few years, uh, Sky have been doing the Open Championship, which I, I'm sure for you was a dream come true. But my question is, who would you like in the box alongside you? And what is your favourite tournament Leaving out the Open, because I'm sure you'd say the Open. So any other tournament barring the Open Championship? Well, it, it would have been a joy to have worked with Peter Ellis. Uh, that would have been a joy because we're very different. I think it might have worked. Uh, it certainly would have worked from his side. I've got no doubt about that. You know, Butch was, was such a great companion. He was such a great colleague. And it didn't matter how difficult the situation gets. As you know, it can... Sometimes you can have some very hairy moments on, on television and they have to be hidden from the viewer and you have to stumble your way through it as if everything's okay. Butch was brilliant at that. He was, he was just a great guy to have alongside. Recently, I've had Rich Beam alongside me, which uh, he's been a joy as well. Again, brought up the same way. His father, a, a PGA professional in, in the United States. I've enjoyed that immensely. I've enjoyed most of it, um, it is changing. We're going into a statistical world that that commentary will be a thing of the past. It, it will be just saying 
certain things that people write. Uh, I can see that happening. I can see it happening in one or two other sports right now, which is why I admire so much commentary. We mentioned Andrew Castle earlier. Andrew, British number one himself, he'd been through all that. He was able to go into the mind of whoever's playing tennis at that time and tell the viewer what he's thinking or what he needs to do or he's lost four points in a row. This is what he has to do. That's what I see as commentary. Young commentators today see it as statistical. You know, these average drivers, you know, 287.8, which to me doesn't really mean anything. It just means he hits a ball a reasonably long way. Mm. So these are the, these are the, the commentators. I, I think uh, any golf commentator would say they would have loved to have worked alongside Peter. Uh, I did half an hour with Peter in America one day, and that was lovely. But if it was an open championship with the history that you and I have enjoyed uh, as kids growing up in golf to where we stand today, I think you'd want Peter there. And an open championship with the, the black and yellow scoreboard and, and the claret jug and the silver medal, Peter would be the man to, to have alongside you. What's your favourite tournament? You probably expect me to say the Open. Yeah, and I probably would. You probably expect me to say the Masters, and I probably would. I don't know if you mean favourite tournament or favourite week that you would cover a tournament. But if we go in the latter, but I, I hate to see that it's cancelled this year. The biggest week outside of the majors for me. Oh, I know what you're going to say. Well, because I've been there, I've been there since the beginning, virtually with SuperSport, and I, I just think the Nedbank when they had 12 players, it was outstanding because they could look after these 12 players exactly the way they wanted. Six two balls, people coming from all over the, the nine states, I think that makes up the Republic, you know, trundling into Sun City. And and you also had 12 great players. It, it wasn't like you had two or three good players and then nine not so good players. You, you had 12 great players. Else was in his prime. McNulty was in his prime. Players like that, you had Miller at the start, you had Seve, you had Trevino, you had, you had all of these people. Mickelson came down. I think when it was 12, uh, that week I always used to think, I'm really looking forward to that. A, I wanted to get back to South Africa because I have many friends there. And I love the golf course. I think the Gary Player Country Club, I can never explain on air to average golfers how difficult mm. that golf course is. Yeah, it's tough. And yet they go around it in 63 and 64 and you think, well, how is that possible? But it was just a great week, uh, and and the the events they had in the evening easily managed with twelve players. Uh, you got to know the players; they were relaxed. So that would have that would be my my favourite one over the last twenty five years outside of the Open and the Masters. I mean, obviously they're going to be top of the list um, because of the history that the Masters now has, and the history of the Open since eighteen sixty. So. Ned Bank, it was the answer to your second question. That's going to cheer you up for the day, isn't it? <laughs> hey, you put a smile on Dale's doll. <laughs> you and final question from my side. You are the consummate professional. You're an absolute legend of broadcasting, but even the best make mistakes. Your biggest on-air gaffe? Oh, I've had a few of them. Don't worry about that. Um, I've had plenty of them. I remember one at St. Andrews uh, with Howard Clark, and he'd hit his drive down the left-hand side of the first, and there was a girl caddying from. It wasn't Fanny Sinison. It was a girl called Lindsay Anderson from Tain up the north. Really good golfer, played off plus two. Lindsay was caddying for Howard. And I looked and I thought, I don't recognise his caddy. So I found out who it was. And he's about to hit the second shot. And I said, well, he's got a new caddy this week. 
uh, have it. Lindsay Anderson from Teen. Mind you, over the years, he's been through a few of them. <laughs> and I, I thought, I was, <laughs> John Colleen, uh, the producer I told you about in the first two years, he just opened the door. He had a set of orange headphones on. And he said, yeah, he says, I think it would be a terrific idea if you said nothing for the next minute. (laughs) 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 And I've I've had the odd one where the the brain doesn't work at the same speed as the mouth. Like like, uh, instead of pine forest, I had a fine forest on air one day. On a spoonerism. Yeah, I also had post your pick card. That was disappointing because I was presenting at the time and I was in vision. So post your pick card didn't go down as well as as, as picture postcard. <laughs> um, but but nothing nothing terribly serious. Well, not yet. But as I get older, that, that I may have that to look forward to. <laughs> oh, geez, we wait. We wait with bated breath for that. You and Murray, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's been absolutely brilliant sitting with you for the past hour and listening to your stories. Like I said, you're an absolute legend, and we love listening to you. So. Thank you very much for your time. We, we really do appreciate it. Before you go, I'll tell you a story about the under-25s at Worthing, which is only seven miles from here. <laughs> I, I, was, <laughs> I, was <ready. laughs> I was ready to go ahead and take that title, and I was drawn in the, in the last match with uh, Dale Hayes, a young Dale Hayes, slim hips. Oh, racing snake. Yeah. Oh, 27-inch waist and all that carry on. And the last hole was a par five downhill and into the wind off an elevated tee, which is never the nicest tee shot. And we both hit the tee shots down there. And Dale, I think, was a couple ahead, maybe three ahead. And I thought, well, you know, we'll sneak an eagle in here. You never know. He might, because the chipping was never his strong point. You know, he'd stick an eagle in here. You never know. You've still got a chance. So I hit mine down. I didn't reach the green. It came up some 15, 20 yards short. He's got the driver out. And he hit this drive, which never left the ground at two feet maximum above the ground and it finished three feet away and I turned to him and I said you topped that I know he's this I know he's this (laughs) but I topped it 274 yards (laughs) brilliant the only shots I hit 274 now are chips (laughs) you and thank you Great pleasure. Yeah, it's great to see you all. And I, I, I hope it won't be too long before we're back down there and sharing yeah. a few beers together. There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.